as we think about the Christmas season. I want to read you uh, the lyrics to a few different songs uh, that are actually quite different, but I want you just to think about what they all have in common. Um, If you've been listening to Christmas music this time of year, maybe on the radio or you have a Pandora station or a Spotify playlist, this one's probably come up, my grown-up Christmas list by David Foster. I think everybody sings this one. Um, Here's part of the song. Just listen to the words. Um, It's a pretty song, but just hear the words. So here's my lifelong wish, my grown-up Christmas list, not for myself, but for a world in need. No more lives turn apart, that wars would never start, and that time would heal all hearts, and everyone would have a friend, and right would always win, and love would never end. No, this is my grown-up Christmas list. Those are some pretty common longings that people have. Um, and the, the first part of the song talks about when I was a child and the things that I expected at Christmas, and here's the gift that I really want. Now, here's another song, kind of from the other end of the spectrum. This is the secular anthem, Imagine, uh, which seems to never just die and go away to the dustbin of history, uh, from John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us, and the world will be as one. Um, And then finally, the song that we began our service with, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee. What is it that all three of these songs have in common? It's not even that they're all three Christmas songs. I don't think Imagine is regarded as a a Christmas song by any stretch of the imagination. What is it that they all have in common from my grown-up Christmas list, Imagine, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel? All three of these songs express deep and profound longing. They're all looking at the world as it is and longing for it to be something different. They're all expressing the hope, sometimes a pretty vague hope, that the world as it is is not what the world will one day be. Longing for something better, a sense that we're living in a broken place. I think we're just reminded of this this past week. If you've seen the news here in Mobile, a nine-year-old girl shot while she's sleeping on her couch by someone shooting into their home, just horrific tragedy and, and evil. Where, what is the basis for this hope, this longing people have? You know, it, that, that first song is sort of based, uh, roots its hope in sort of nostalgic optimism. I remember when I was a kid, and I'm hoping it'll one day be that again. We'll one day sort of bring back what we once had. The second one, imagine, is rooted in sort of a Marxist fatalism and this utopian progressivism that things will just kind of get better and better, and one day everything will be one. We'll all hold our hands and sing Kumbaya. It is only the last song that is rooted in anything that is actually meaningful, not just, hey, let's bring back the good old days and a grown-up Christmas list and Santa Claus will bring us good things. It's only the last song that roots us in something that is actually real, something that can deliver, something that will be an anchor for our hopes and our longings, the coming of Emmanuel, not rooted in sort of utopian progressivism or conservative nostalgia, but rooted in the promises of God. 
simply a fact that we all know the world is not right. It's a fact that we all want it to be something different, that hopefully one day we will get there. But beloved, only Christianity, only the message of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas gives us an answer for that longing. By the way, the fact that we long for it means that it one day it seems possible, right? The fact that you long for a steak means that there is such a thing as steak. And the fact that we long for peace on earth and goodwill to men means that there is such a thing as peace on earth, goodwill to men. The question is, where is it going to be found? It was C.S. Lewis who said that if in my heart I, I'm, I'm longing for something that this world cannot satisfy, the only conclusion is that I was made for another world. And beloved, one day that other world will come when Jesus returns. Now the thing that's interesting is the world into which Jesus came, and, and Psalm 80, we're going to come to this here in just a minute, really expresses this, was a world that was full of its own set of longings. He comes into the, the world of, of Judea and to, to Bethlehem in, in a time when Israel, yes, they're in their land, but they're oppressed by Rome. And they have all the promises of the Old Testament, the one we started the service with, that there's going to be a child who's going to be born and he's going to sit on David's throne and he's going to rule forever. And they're longing for that. They're living in a world of immense suffering and oppression and pain. They're just a far-flung province in a vast empire. They're occupied by the brutality of the Roman legions. Gone are the glory days of David. Gone are the glory days of Solomon. Gone are even just the days when they had their own kingdom under even someone like Zedekiah. Gone are even the days of the would-be sort of Jewish kingdom of the Hasmonean dynasty. Instead, they have a brutal Herod who pretends to be king of the Jews, who's not even Jewish and isn't really a king. And they have a Caesar all the way over in Rome basically taxing them to death. world full of longing. Psalm 80 is a psalm that captures the longing of Israel from back in the days of the Old Testament, even hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus. This longing for something to change, this aching for, we're hurting, and we, what's the answer here? And here's the thing that's amazing, is a psalm written before the coming of Jesus anticipates the arrival of Jesus and amazingly captures the longing of every heart still today. Let's read Psalm 80. Psalm 80, to the chief musician upon Shoshanim Eduth, which is telling us something about the instrumentation or maybe the tune, a psalm of Asaph. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock. Thou that dwellest between the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy strength and come and save us. Turn us again, O God. And cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? Thou feedest them with the bread of tears, and givest them tears to drink in great measure. Thou makest a strife unto our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her branch, her boughs under the sea and her branches under the river. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? The boar out of the wood doth waste it, and the wild beast of the field doth devour it. Return, 
We beseech thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. It's burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man whom thou madest strong for thyself. So will not we go back from thee. Quicken us, and we will call upon thy name. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. As I read that, you can sense the, 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 the longing, the, the desperation. Even in that refrain, you see in verse 3, verse 7, verse 19, basically the same words are repeated, almost like a, a chorus at the end of each stanza of a hymn. Turn us, cause us to repent, cause us to come back to you, God. Cause your face to shine, give us favor and forgiveness, and we'll be saved. This is a longing for deliverance, a longing for salvation. Really, those, that, that, that threefold refrain breaks us up into three parts. It gives us three different longings that are answered by the coming of Jesus. Um, I like simple outlines that kind of just come right out of the text. We see here in verses 1, 2, and 3, that first sort of stanza and refrain, we see a longing for the good shepherd. So notice how they address God. This is important. Give ear. So listen, O shepherd of Israel. David had written in Psalm 23, The Lord, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. This picture of God as a shepherd. Now, none of us, to my knowledge, are, are shepherds, but I think we get the image of one who's sort of herding and caring for and leading the sheep and bringing them into pastures where they're safe. The one who is the protector and the provider. Shepherd is also at times a metaphor for the king. Uh, you know, David was a shepherd. David becomes the king, becomes the leader, becomes the ruler. And so he's saying, God, you're ultimately the, the king, the shepherd of Israel. They're praying to him. He says, you led Joseph like a flock. What a beautiful picture, this relationship between Israel and between God, between flock and between shepherd. He's the one who cares, the one who leads, the one who provides, the one who protects, the one who restores. Now notice the, um, the references to the different tribes of Israel. Verse 1 says he led Joseph. Verse 2 mentions Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Uh, these are all the tribes that descended from, from Rachel, that sort of favorite wife of Jacob. But here's the thing, geographically, they're, they're primarily part of the northern kingdom. Remember the kingdom of Israel split after Solomon. There's the northern kingdom and there's the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom got conquered rather early by the Assyrians, and off they go into to exile, and they never come back to the land. You can almost imagine this being written by someone in the southern kingdom after the Assyrians have swept through and wiped out their, their brethren in the north, wiped out those ten northern tribes, and they're seeing the destruction. They're seeing Samaria being completely flattened. They're seeing the, the brutal, horrible Assyrian empire with their foot on the neck of Israel. Just a time of immense suffering. Eventually, of course, the southern tribes, they also went into exile and only partially ever came back into the land. It was never a complete return. They're longing once again for the shepherd. If you will, the, the nation at this point has hit rock bottom. Rock bottom. There's no, you can't go any lower than this. You've been defeated. You've been uprooted out of your land. You've been taken into exile. Your cities are burned. Complete disaster. You're dominated by a foreign foe. It does not get any worse than that. They've been enslaved. They're in a sense, as it were, back into Egypt, sort of back where they started. 
back in a place where they're dominated by a foreign power, praying for a new exodus, for God once again to lead his people out and to restore them. Enslaved, longing to be free, longing to follow the shepherd again. How does this get fulfilled? Because you look at Israel's history and you find out this never was answered in history. They never came back to, to the land, those northern, those northern tribes. Well, there's a little phrase here. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, stir up your strength, or God, would you act again? And notice, and come and save us. I think that's a really important word. This is not just a God from a distance. Would you kind of work out the things in history? But would you come in your, in your presence? Would you arrive? The one who dwells between the cherubim, would you come back and tabernacle yourself in our midst? Would you come and display your glory again as you once did? Would you come and demonstrate your majesty as you once did? Good shepherd, would you come? How does that get fulfilled? I, I think we... You know your Bible, you know how this is fulfilled. The good shepherd did indeed come. He came as that baby in a manger who grew up one day to say this, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. John chapter 10, extended metaphor where he says, all the the people who are leading you, they're just in it for, for themselves. But I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. I'm not the one who flees when the wolves come, but I'm the one who faces the wolves and dies in the place of the sheep. By the way, no no shepherd would do that. You understand human life, sheep's lives, like there's no measure in value. They, They understood sheep dying for the shepherd on the altar, but here we get the shepherd dying for the sheep. The good shepherd truly did come, and his name was Jesus. He comes like a shepherd searching over the hills and through the valleys, gathering his lost sheep, gathering you and me to himself. He says, I have sheep of of another fold, and I'm going to bring them, and there will be one fold. doesn't matter, Jew or Gentile. He is seeking and saving that which was lost. And you know, when Jesus saves us, you come to faith in Jesus. You not only are like, hey, sins are forgiven, but you are brought into a relationship with the shepherd, a place to belong. That you never ever from that point on are living life alone, but you are living life with the shepherd leading, the shepherd protecting, the shepherd providing. And you're also brought into a flock with other people. We call that the church, a place to be. Now think about the longings of our world, that that Christmas list. Everyone would have a friend, right? People are like, man, we want a relationship. Yes, we can partially enjoy that sort of in this world, but ultimately found in a relationship with Christ where the, the, where the barriers are broken down, where we have direct access to God and a profound relationship with one another. Now, verse 3, I want to park a little bit on this because this gets repeated three different times. And the only difference between verse 7 and verse 19 is each time the address for God gets a little bit longer. In verse 3, he's just called, O God. Turn us again, O God. Verse 7, he's, O God of hosts. And then verse 19, he is, O Lord God of hosts. So there's sort of a, uh, an escalation, sort of, if you will, every time we get to that chorus, it gets a little bit louder and a little bit more uh, passionate. But this is an amazing prayer, and I really, really love how this is rendered in the King James Version. I think they really got this right. Turn us again. Cause, cause us to turn. Sometimes it's just been like, you know, return or something along that, that The idea here is God is doing something in our hearts, causing us to turn to him. In other words, the the plight that Israel was in was a result of their sin. They had turned away from God. They had rebelled from him. 
and all the horrible things are happening, saying, God, you've got, you've got to help us turn back to you. You've got to bring us to repentance. We've gone after sin, and we need God to turn us around. We need him to come and rescue us. We need the good shepherd to seek us out because we love our sin. You see, we're like Israel. You read the Old Testament, you're like, what's wrong with these guys? And they're worshiping idols, and they don't get it. Let's be honest, without Jesus, we chase after idols. Without Jesus, we, we, we put all of our hopes in our materialism, in money, in relationships. We love our sin. That's why people sin. People sin because they like sinning. We need someone to come and give us a, a heart change, a, a, a new heart, a new creation, a new birth. And listen, we can't do that ourselves. We can no more give ourselves a new heart than you could perform a brain transplant on yourself. You just can't. Someone's got to do it for you. And that's why Jesus says you must be born again. Not just try and improve yourself, not just try to sort of try to clean your life up, but there's got to be an utter profound, divinely imparted transformation in your heart. You've got to come to faith in Jesus. But notice the verse goes on, turn us again, O God. This plea like, God, you're the one who has to turn us because we can't even make our own hearts turn because our hearts actually like our sin. And then notice this, and cause thy face to shine. Now, I think they're thinking of the high priestly blessing in number six. The Lord bless thee and keep thee and cause his face to shine upon thee. I sort of imagine that every service that happened at the temple, whenever they would go for the festivals or come to the temple to offer a sacrifice, they would have heard the, the high priest pronounce this blessing on the people. The Lord bless thee, the Lord keep thee, the Lord cause his face to shine upon thee. A couple of images going on here of God's, the radiance of his glory favorably being sh shining upon us. We might even just think this simply as God's, you say, man, someone's face was radiant, they're, they're smiling praying for God's smile upon them. In other words, they're praying, God, would you forgive and be favorable once again to us? And notice the result is we shall be saved. Notice there's two parts here to being saved. There is repenting, turn us, and then there is on God's part forgiving. Turn us, forgive us. Turn us, forgive us again and again. That's the issue. The real issue for Israel is not that the Assyrians have conquered them. It's not that they're out of the land. It's that their sin needs to be dealt with. And so too with us. Without Christ, we're not under the smile of God, but under the wrath of God. We're not near the shepherd, but we're far from him. This is a longing from rock bottom for the divine smile and for the good shepherd. It wasn't fulfilled in Nehemiah's day. It wasn't fulfilled in Malachi's day. It was fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. The baby born in the manger is the shining glory of God, tabernacled in the midst of his people. The word was made flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. The one who is the good shepherd the one who is the very smile of a holy and loving God upon an undeserving world. So the first longing that is in this prayer for this longing for restoration is a longing for the good shepherd to come and rescue. Now my question is, have you been rescued by the good shepherd? Have you been rescued by the good shepherd? Has there been a time in your life where you have, as it were, come face to face with the good shepherd, the one who laid his life down for you? Has there been a time when he has gathered you, as it were, in his arms and taken you to himself? Has there been a time in your life that you have repented, turn us again, O God, and been forgiven once for all with his face shining upon you? 
a longing for something this world is longing for, for that belonging, for that status, for knowing that I am right with God. Think about how many people in this world go through their, their whole lives looking for affirmation and approval and approval, and they never can quite get it. They're always, what does everybody think? This verse is saying you can have a God who is favorable towards you, who welcomes you and accepts you in his presence unconditionally because of Christ. There's nothing that could be better than that. But we now come to verse, verse 4, and we come to the second stanza. O Lord God of hosts. Okay, that's not just like, okay, let's come up with another name for God here. We call him shepherd, so let's come up with something so we don't bore him with a, the same title. These titles are important. The idea here is the, the God of armies, the God who is the divine warrior. We get this image in the Old Testament of God going to war against his enemies, of defeating his foes, uh, of, of bringing his power to make things right that are currently out of sorts. So, O Lord God of hosts, a divine warrior, invincible warrior, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? This longing for his intervention. Now, we get in verses 4, 5, and 6, we get a complaint. And in verse 7, we get the petition. We get a request. And we go back and forth in each stanza of, here's the complaint. Here's the request. So, there's a question. This is raised in a question. How long will you be angry? against the prayers of thy people. You read the prophets, and you find one thing that happened again and again in Israel's history, is they would show up to the temple, kind of come to church, as it were, with their sacrifices and their prayers, with rampant sin in their hearts. Right? So they really actually love these other deities, these other gods. They're involved in immorality and injustice. And then they sort of show up to the temple, and they're like, God, here's my sacrifice. Hope you're happy with it. And God says, I hate those sacrifices that are offered insincerely. I despise worship that is simply just external going through the motions. And rather than, than bringing about God's favor, such actions brought about God's anger. So they're sort of praying to God, God, would you make everything right, but we're not actually going to deal with sin in our hearts. God hates false worship. God hates it when we come to church with unconfessed sin in our lives and we stand up and sing, I surrender all, full well knowing that we want to hold on to that, that, that pet sin of ours. When we come and say, I'm going to pretend to be a Christian and go through the motions of doing this because my, you know, my mother-in-law wants me to do this or my spouse wants me, or I'm doing this for the kids, but my heart's not actually in this. God wants pure worship, offered from a pure heart. He's angry with the prayers of his people because they're offered up insincerely. They want to be delivered from the Assyrians, from the, their enemies, but they don't want to be delivered from their sin. So God, you, the divine warrior, you're going to have to come and make this right. You're going to have to subdue our sin and subdue our enemies. So as a result, we have verse 5, you feed them with the bread of tears. You give them tears to drink. They're almost saying like, now what we're having for dinner every day is sorrow. This is from morning to night is just pain and suffering and hardship. You can imagine under foreign occupation, under foreign domination, Immense suffering. They'll make us a strife unto our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Like the nations around us look at us, look at Israel, look at what should be the representative people of God, and they see a defeated foe. They see people who are no different than them. I think you see survey after survey in, in our world today. People think of evangelical Christians, and they think of the hypocrisy. They think of the, you know, the, the intolerance and all of these things that we begin to be known for in the world because in so many times... We're not much different than the world. So what's the solution? The solution here is verse 7, turn us again. Now notice the title gets repeated, O God of hosts. Like the divine warrior is going to have to come and go to war and win a battle for this to be made right, for the divine warrior to come and to intervene, 
and deal with what is wrong in our lives and in our world. I think in the immediate term, God, would you defeat our rebellion and our sin and, and bring us into a place where we trust you and, to, and love you? But also the enemies that are, let's face it, what the Assyrians did to Israel was wicked and evil. What the Babylonians did to Judah. There's so much that we look at in our world, we see all of the, the, the injustice. It's easy to see, like, man, boom, there's, there's this injustice, there's this suffering, there's oppression, there's all of these horrible things. We grieve when we hear about the, the violence of, of war, when we, when, we, when, we, when we read about the pain of abuse, when we see the persistent stain of racism, when we witness the brokenness of sin. We, we see injustice, we see evil in our world, and it, hopefully it breaks our hearts and makes us ache for something better. We long for a day when justice will roll down like a mighty stream. We long for a day when what is wrong in our world will be righted. We want to see evil judged. Like, God, those people who are, are doing evil, would you judge them? But here's the thing, we just don't want God to judge our evil. Judge other people's evil. Judge the evil that's done against me, but not the evil that I have in my own heart. But when God makes things right, he deals with all evil. And here's how he does it. Jesus comes into the world as the, the divine warrior. But rather than exacting judgment against us, he bears the judgment that we deserve. Rather than punishing us for our sins, he takes the punishment that we deserve for our sins on himself at the cross. And one day he will return as the one who will judge all evil. So here's the thing. Your sin will be dealt with. It's dealt with either at the cross or it is judged forever in hell. Those are the options. But sin will be dealt with. Evil will be judged. Everything wrong will one day be dealt with. Now, the choice is yours. Is it going to be dealt with at the cross? I'm going to trust in Christ? Or I'm going to try to deal with my sin myself and face God's wrath forever? So the people here are longing for the divine warrior to come. They're longing for him to make things right. And what they were actually longing for, and by the way, those, there, there's so much talk today in our world. We want justice, and we want everything to be made right, and, and people who don't even think about God, and they, without even realizing it, what is it they're longing for? They're longing for the kingdom of God. They're longing for, man, we want heaven and earth to be one. That's going to happen one day. But not just by sort of the, the fatalistic progress of history. It's going to happen when Jesus returns. One of the most scary things in the world is when people want the kingdom of God without God. Because something will fill that void, right? Totalitarianism and, and, and all these things. One day he's going to come back and make all things new. We now come into the third set of longing, uh, the third longing here. Uh, in verse 8, and you'll notice this takes up the bulk of the psalm. So we'll spend a little more time here. So first, they're, they're longing for the good shepherd to come and rescue. Then they're longing for the divine warrior to come and intervene and make things right. But now in verse 8, there's this extended kind of metaphor with this picture of this vine and this vineyard, and the vineyard gets trampled. They're longing for the vineyard's restoration. Uh, it's an interesting metaphor. Look at verse 8. Now, it sort of changes. So you almost picture the, the music changing here, and there's a new section of the song Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. 
Um, kind of an interesting image. You're like, okay, are we picturing a big, long sort of kudzu vine growing from Egypt up the, the coast? Like, you know, this is, this is a metaphor. The idea of, is sort of like there's this vine and God transplants it and then plants it in the Holy Land. Okay, this is a metaphor for the Exodus. The people were in Egypt. They're under Pharaoh's domination. Through Moses, God says, let my people go that they may come serve me. And God delivers them out of Egypt. He brings them into the, the, the Holy Land, brings them into their possession, and he plants them there. We think about Joshua with the, the conquest, crossing Jordan and defeating Jericho and, and Ai and all the battles, and the people are planted there in the land. And over the centuries, they grow, they flourish, they fill the land. Under David and Solomon, they, they, they grow to the point that they are ruling everything from Egypt to the south, the Mediterranean Sea, to the, uh, to the west, all the way to the Euphrates River, uh, the glory days of David and Solomon. Now, notice how that gets pictured here. God brings a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen, so God expels the Canaanites out of the, out of the land of Canaan um, through his power. The, by the way, the conquest of, uh, you know, of what we call Israel um, sometimes people were like, oh, look at how unjust that was. That was a, a working of God. That was God's, God's retribution against an evil people and his gifts to Israel. And then God prepared room before it. He sort of prepares the land. You cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. So over time, they conquer all the territory God gave to them. The hills were covered with the shadow of it. The bowels thereof were like the goodly cedars. Now, Lebanon to the north, they were known for their cedars. So there's a reference like they're spreading north to south. Um, the, the idea here of the hills being covered in the shade, okay, typically you plant a grapevine. Uh, grapevines aren't great for shade, okay? If you're like, man, I want a good shade tree in the backyard, let's plant grapes. Uh, your, your, your spouse will be like, yeah, that's not a good idea. Let's plant something that will actually... So there's a little bit of extravagant language here. Um, but think of this, this vine. Um, grapevines typically don't grow super fast, but kudzu does. It's like under God's blessing, the grapevine grew like kudzu. Uh, in our neighborhood, there's a telephone pole, and the kudzu has sort of grown, you know, those little wires that come out and hold it in place. It's grown all the way up to the top of the telephone pole, and it looks like a Christmas tree. Um, horrible stuff. But that's the idea, is this vine is just growing and flourishing under the blessing of God. She sent out her boughs, uh, verse 11, unto the sea, okay, to the Mediterranean Sea to the west, and her branches under the river, the Euphrates River to the east. And they've, they've gotten everything that God promised them. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's glorious, they're flourishing. And you can't, you can't hardly read sort of First Kings without being like, this is wonderful under the blessing of God when they're obeying him and under their kings David and Solomon. So the song is looking back over their history like, man, remember what it was like when we as God's vineyard flourished? By the way, this, uh, this image of a vine is, is very common in the Old Testament as a metaphor for Israel. So in Isaiah 5, um, in fact, let's go over to Isaiah 5 because this is key to understanding this and understanding other parts of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 5, so a few places, pages rather, to your right in your Bible. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, then Isaiah. Isaiah 5 is also a poem that thinks about this relationship between God as sort of the farmer, the gardener who's planting the, the vineyard. Israel is this vine that's intended to be fruitful before God. And it makes the same point. Look at everything that God did for his people Israel. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Now, I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved 
speaking of God, hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Okay, so he didn't, it's not like you try to plant a vineyard in a place where grapes don't grow, but you put it in a really good place, and he fenced it. Hey, that way animals don't get in there and eat all your stuff. Some of you grow gardens, and uh, somebody was just telling me this week how deer got in and you know, ate everything. You Put a fence around it so that the deer don't get in, so the animals don't get in and destroy it. He gathered out all the stones thereof. He planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. Now, what is the point of planting grapes? It's so that you get grapes. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. So, like, think of the little sour ones that you can't actually eat, uh, like our satsuma tree. I think there's three satsumas on there, and they're horrible. Um, I don't know, I'm doing something wrong. And now, O inhabitant of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I had not done in it? In other words, he's done everything that would be done that would lead you to expect the vineyard to produce grapes a bumper crop of them. Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes, little, little tiny ones that you can't really eat because they're sour and nasty. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof. So I'm going to take the fence away that protected it. I will, uh, and it shall be eaten up. So the deer and the, the pigs and everything will get in there and eat the whole thing up. And I will break down the wall thereof and it shall be trodden down and I will lay it waste it shall not be pruned nor digged, and there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain not upon it. God's judgment. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment. So here's the fruit that God's like. This is what I came for, the grapes that I was looking for. I looked for judgment, and behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a Christ. So God's looking for his people to demonstrate love and love their neighbors themselves. And instead, there's just injustice and oppression and selfishness. Uh, idolatry and immorality and all of these other things. Now, the point here, come back to Psalm 80. You can see some of the same language. There's a wall that's put around to protect it. Psalm 80, verse 12, asks the question, why hast thou then broken down her hedge? Why, why have you taken away the wall? Isaiah 5 answers the question. The vineyard's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, so God's going to remove his protection. This is exactly what happened to Israel. That's what happened to Judah. God took away his protection, and their enemies came in and destroyed it. Their enemies came in and defeated them. Why? Because of their sin. Israel has this place a great privilege. They're designed to represent God to the world, to bear fruit for his pleasure. And they have failed. They have rejected God. So we get this picture here, the, the, not only the planted vineyard, but now we get the plundered vineyard in verse 12. The wall is taken, taken down. So everybody who walks by just sort of takes some grapes and steals from them. Verse 12, the boar out of the wood doth waste it. So you think about a, a wild pig. If a wild pig got into your vineyard, I would imagine it would do tremendous damage. The picture here would be the, the, the great Gentile power. Remember, pig's an unclean animal. So the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they're coming in and destroying. And then the wild beasts of the field, think of the insects, the locusts. They're coming and eating what's left over, sort of scavenging the leftovers. Look at verse 16. There's another description. It's burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. The vineyard's been burned to the ground. The vineyard's been destroyed. Israel has been judged. And in a sense, this is where they're at when Jesus shows up. Yeah, there's some people back in the land, but they're still under God's judgment. They're, they're, they sort of have a semblance of the temple and these things. But they're not experiencing God's blessing. What, what, what's the solution here? Well, verse 14, 
return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. Okay, so there's that phrase we saw in verse 3, 7, and 19, turn us again. This word return here is the same Hebrew word, just a different, slightly different form of it, different tense of it, if you will. So the other stanzas are saying, God, would you turn us? Now this is saying, God, would you turn back to us? Would you return and look down and behold? Would you see what's going on? This language recalls Exodus, where God sees from heaven the oppression of his people. Saying, God, would you do a new Exodus? Would you bring us out of slavery once again? And notice that word, and visit. Visit. Okay, this is not just the idea of, like, I'm going to stop by, pay a quick visit, we'll drink some sweet tea, then go home. But God, would you show up to rescue? Again, it's not just, God, would you make our, our situation better, but God, would you come to us? So how does this get fulfilled? How is this longing fulfilled? Notice verse 17. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man, whom thou madest strong for thyself. Kind of an odd thing to sort of throw into this, talking about vineyards and vines and grapes, and he's like, and this person from your right hand, would you, would you, um, you, know, would you strengthen that guy? Would you, this person, the son of man, would you sort of raise him up? And the result, verse 18, is we'll no longer turn away from you, and we'll be alive, and we'll call on you. Who, who is this? Verse 15 also has uh, something strange. Okay, the vineyard thy right hand is planted. And then that word translated branch is the Hebrew word for son, S-O-N. And for the son that you made strong for yourself. Like, who is this son of God? Who is this person from God's right hand who needs to be strengthened for the vineyard to be restored? Well, this could be a reference perhaps to Israel. Okay, in Exodus 4, Israel is called God's son. It could be a reference to a king, because 2 Samuel 7, 14 calls, the, calls David, and you will be a son to me. But ultimately, this has got to be talking about Jesus. Because the, the son of God, Israel as a whole, they failed. The son of God, David, representing them, his line failed. And so God is going to raise up a new David, a new Israel, a, a new vine, and his name is Jesus. He's the only hope. It's not Josiah. It's not Israel. It's the Messiah, the one who's the true king, the one who is, is rather than a false vine that, that doesn't produce fruit, one who's a true vine who does. In fact, Jesus himself says in John 15, my father is the husbandman. Okay, my father is the, the farmer, the planter. Because I am the true vine. What he is saying is, I'm the true Israel. I'm the, uh, Israel as a nation failed to represent God, but I am standing as the perfect Israelite, as the representative of God's people. The one who takes our place. This is really, really, really good news. Because like Israel, all of us have failed to keep God's law. Jesus lived perfectly as our representative. He bears the fruit that we don't and cannot bear on our own. He kept the law that we cannot follow, and he died the death that we deserved, and he arose again from the dead so that we would have life as the true vine. The true Israel is Jesus. And the restoration of Israel is the coming of Jesus. And so we, today, we come to faith in Jesus, get 
brought into that vine. As he says, and abide in me, remain in me, and I in you. He continues God's purposes that began with Israel and continue today as sinners turn to Jesus. So now verse 18, the result of this guy coming, of this Messiah coming, is we will no, go, we will no longer go back from you. That's kind of an audacious thing to say. If Israel's making a promise to say, we're going to sort of come to God and this Messiah is going to come and we promise we'll never, we'll never sin again. That, that's not what they're saying. Is rather what is going to happen is when Jesus comes, he is going to do something. He's going to inaugurate a brand new covenant. Not like the old covenant that was, here's the laws that Israel couldn't follow. It's going to be a new covenant where God writes the law on our hearts. It's going to be a new arrangement where the Spirit of God comes in and changes us and dwells within our hearts and makes us desire to obey Him. We'll never turn from you again. This is a prediction. Verse 18 goes on to say, okay, we'll never go back from you. We're going to turn and we'll be forever yours. Quicken us, which is the idea of make us alive. We're dead. Bring us to life. And we will call upon thy name. And we have Romans 10, 13 that says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall what? Shall be saved. What a promise. The vineyard's been destroyed. How is it fulfilled? Jesus comes as the true vine. How is it restored? Sinners turning to Jesus, being quickened, being brought to a place of transformation, a new birth. This promise can be for any one of you here today if you will call out to Jesus in faith. You'll turn to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The Bible says this in so many different ways. Now, the big point that I'm making here today, verse 19, Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts, cause thy face to shine, we shall be saved. The longing of Psalm 80, the longing of Israel when Jesus came, indeed the longing of our world today, is ultimately for the coming of Jesus. Jesus comes and he is the good shepherd. Jesus comes and he is the shining face and glory of God. Jesus comes and he is the true vine. Jesus comes and he is the faithful beloved son who fulfills the deepest longings of the human heart. You see, the hope of this world is not a return for this nostalgic past to childhood, like, man, when I was a kid and Christmas was so magical, nor is it in the pursuit of some progressive utopia. Though no, the hope of this world is Jesus Christ. What is it that you are longing for? Like this, man, if I could have this, the world would be, is it the security of of wealth and a stable income? Is it love from, from someone? Is it just longer life or just happiness? Our problem with these longings is we stop short of Jesus. Because you might have all the wealth in the world and one day you're going to die. You might have the greatest family in the world and one day you're going to die. You might have love in this life and eventually you're going to die. You've got to press through just those shorter term, like, yeah, that's sort of a short term repair for that longing, to the ultimate answer, which is Jesus. Behind every longing of our aching heart, behind every longing of even a fallen world that people go all the wrong ways with them, is for one that so many do not even acknowledge, they do not even see. Go on to social media, it's full of people frantically virtue signaling, trying to prove their goodness and be justified in the eyes of the world. See me as a good and righteous person because I've said the right thing, or I've been against the right thing at the right time and made a post, what is it that people are longing for when they do that? To be justified. Problem is, if someone digs up a post from your past that doesn't meet the current standard, you can never be justified. 
We're living in a world that is demanding standards of morality that nobody can ever keep, and they keep on changing. The corporate world is full of people seeking to justify their existence by doing more, earning more, producing more, being more, and you can never quite get there. Behind the longing for justification is a re- the reality and a sense that even though people don't recognize it, that things are not right between me and my creator. And here's the good news. Being right with him is not based on me doing more, achieving more, saying the right things, virtue signaling, all of that. It's found by resting in Jesus. It is exhausting to try to keep up with looking good. But Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Behind our longing for security, if I can just have enough money in my 401k, and I can sort of batten down the hatches over here and know that I've got a plan for every contingency, then I will feel secure and safe. But ultimately, those things will not provide security. What we need is eternal security that is found in the coming of Jesus. Behind that longing for acceptance, I want everybody to to like me and think well of me and to have friends and, and, and all of these people around me and relationships is a deep need we have to be accepted with God. Acceptance we cannot earn, acceptance that comes only through the coming and the work of Jesus. Our world is longing for Jesus and they do not even realize it. People go to all kinds of places to try to satisfy that longing. People will drink, will work themselves to death, will bounce from marriage to marriage to marriage, trying to find the one person who will make all of their dreams come true. That's idolatry. Idolatry is trying to find in this world what we can only find in Christ, what we can only find in Jesus. You see, eventually all of our wells run dry, but the living water does not. Jesus subversively fulfills the longings of the human heart. I say subversively because they're not the ways that we expect. But the way he would fulfill it is give me lots of money. No, no, what he gives us is not lots of money and an easy life. He gives us himself, which is so much better. He fulfills those longings by giving us a relationship with him forever. Our post-truth world is longing for truth, and he comes along and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our world of individualism, everyone doesn't have a place to fit in. He comes along saying, you can be accepted in the beloved one on a grace-based relationship with God. Our longing for joy, he fulfills by guaranteeing to us his very presence, even through pain, for all eternity. And our longing for life, he gives by giving us life and life more abundantly for ever and ever. I guess, guess what I'm saying is don't settle. Don't, don't, don't settle for like, well, I'm going to try to answer these longings with, good, this will we'll have a big Christmas party and I'll feel good for a week. Or I'll get another, another hit from these drugs and I'll feel okay for a few hours. Throw all that aside. Throw all those idols aside and run to Jesus. For those longing for the good shepherd to lead and to guide once again, Jesus is the good shepherd. For those longing for a divine warrior to come and make things right, he has come and he is coming again. And for those longing for the true vine, he has come and he offers new life for all who enter into a relationship with him. Jesus is enough. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the solution to the longing and the aching.
Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be 